we go. Well, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 8. And by way of review, let me just remind us that we've, in, we've called this series Instructions for the Church. Uh, and we've called it that because that's what this letter is about. The Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy, who is kind of his child in the faith. And he's writing to Timothy so that Timothy, as you'll say a little bit later, will know how to conduct himself in the household of God, will know how to lead God's church. Now, it's urgent that he write this letter because there's some things in Ephesus, which is the city that Timothy is in, that are kind of out of order. You've got some people there who want to be teachers of the law, the sort of Old Testament law of Judaism. Um, they are not understanding the gospel, and they are upsetting the faith of other people. And Paul wants Timothy to put a stop to that, right? And he wants Timothy to put a stop to that, not out of some aggressive sort of power control kind of thing, but he says in chapter 1, verse 5, that the aim of this charge is love. He's trying to protect the love of the church. He's trying to protect the, the virtue of the church. And so he instructs Timothy to address these false teachers. And along the way, as he talks about the gospel, Paul himself remembers how he was saved. He remembers in chapter 1, verse 12, that Jesus Christ gave him strength that Jesus judged him faithful and appointed him to the service of the gospel, to the ministry, even though in his past life, he was a blasphemer, someone who slandered God. He was a persecutor, someone who attacked and harmed God's church. In fact, he would arrest men, women, children, drag them off the jail, um, stand by as some of them was killed. He was a real enemy of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So he was formerly a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and, a, and an insolent opponent, he said. He thought he was doing right, but he was acting in ignorance and unbelief. And God showed him mercy. God showed him mercy and grace and saved him from the judgment that he deserved. And so Paul gives testimony to this. And, and then in chapter 2, he turns to, um, from that testimony to thinking about, okay, now let me start telling you how the church should govern itself. So in chapter 2, the main theme is kind of prayer. It says, basically, I want you to pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, for kings and all those who are in high positions. And I, I want people to be modest and self-controlled. And then when he comes to chapter 3, he begins to address the issue of leadership in the church, the offices of the church. Last week, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he began to talk about elders or overseers or pastors. Uh, and beloved, I know that in church traditions now, those have come to mean, those have come to be titles for different levels of positions in denominations and churches. But in the Bible, it's the same position. An elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is a bishop. It's all the same role. And so he begins to talk about the qualifications for those whose uh, responsibility it is to, to lead the church and to teach the church. And you see that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And in chapter 8, our text for this morning, he comes to the second office um, for the church, and that is deacons. So if you will, look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, 
Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about deacons here. And one natural question to ask ourselves is, well, what is a deacon? Well, the word literally means table servant. It's a table servant. It's a waiter. Uh, It gets used in both a general way and a specific way in the Bible. Um, Generally, it can be used to speak of any kind of service, any kind of ministry that's done uh, in service to others. But in a specific technical way, it's used the way he's talking about here to refer to the office of deacons uh, in the New Testament church. Now, the word deacon is not used over in Acts chapter 6, but there are many folks who believe that that's where the office gets its start. Some of you will remember what's going on in Acts chapter 6. The church is growing rapidly, right? And uh, there's an there's a, there's a argument that breaks out between widows, Greek-speaking widows and Hebrew-speaking widows. The Hebrew-speaking widows, because they were widows, they had no other source of income and support, so the church was providing meals for them. Well, they were getting their meals, but it seems somehow the Greek-speaking widows weren't getting theirs. So there's this kind of language, cultural, ethnic kind of strife going on, even though everybody's Jewish, right? And and they call the apostles to address this issue, and the apostles say this, it's not good for us to leave the ministry of the word in prayer. We're going to be dedicated to that, because that's our job, to teach and to pray. Instead, they said this, Look out among yourselves and choose seven people who we will dedicate to this task of taking care of the distribution to the widows. And that's what it pleased the church. That's what the church did. They prayed. They nominated seven folks who served as deacons. The interesting thing about those seven folks is six of the names are Greek, which indicates that the early church had an eye toward correcting injustices and imbalances in ways that paid attention to the sort of different access to power and authority. And so they appoint these seven uh, deacons. These seven deacons take over responsibility for administering food to the widows. And the Bible says a number of things there in terms of deacons and their role. There were a couple of results that came out of that that are really important. Number one, a church that was experiencing strife became peaceful again. So deacons have a responsibility of being shock absorbers in the church. You know what shock absorbers are in your car? Well, you know what they are if you don't have them, but they ain't working, right? Because every bump, every pothole you hit just rocks the car real hard. But if you got good shocks, the whole purpose of the shocks is to take the shock of hitting a, a, a pothole or a bump or something to take the disruption of that shock out of your drive. And that's what deacons do. They, they handle um, practical, administrative Um, service areas in the life of the church in such a way that they take the shock out of those things and preserve the ride of the church. Here's the other thing that was said in in Acts chapter 6, and if you want to, you can look at verses 1 to 7 of Acts chapter 6. In in verses 6 and 7, this is what we're told, that the word of God multiplied. Because they took this role to take care of the practical needs of the church 
the apostles were able to give themselves to the ministry of the word, and the ministry of the word grew. And the result of that, number three, was many people were saved. So this role, even though in some ways it might be regarded as a behind-the-scenes role or a practical role, or in the minds of many Christians, and this is wrong thinking, but in the minds of many Christians, it's not as prominent as the, as the pastoral role. No, 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 beloved, don't think that way. This role is as vital to the life, the unity of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the conversion of souls as the preacher's role is. So deacons are servants. They wait tables. And their whole ministry, in many ways, affects the experience of the church. And we know how this works, don't we? When's the thing about the last time you put on that little black dress or you put on a nice suit and tie? You got yourself clean. I mean, you, you tried to walk by every mirror you could find. You're like, oh, we pop it right now. And you organize, you got the car cleaned, or maybe, maybe you got a limo. It was that fancy an occasion, and you picked up your, your spouse or your date, or you went alone, because again, you just banging like that, right? And you go to this fancy restaurant, it's a five-star restaurant, five, six courses, and, and you get there, you're excited, you're sitting beneath chandeliers, and there's live music in the background. Now imagine your waiter comes to your table and you smell alcohol on their breath. And their speech is slurred. And they kind of all over you. A little too handsy, a little too close. <laughs> what you want to order? <laughs> and imagine you're there with your date, and they sit down next to your date and start trying to rap to your date. And they, you know, they finish, okay, I got you, I got you, I got you. I'm going to tell the chef what you want. I'm going to tell the chef what you want. And they, and they walk off, ruins the whole night. Then You forgot about how cute you look. You forgot about the clean limo waiting to take you home. You forgot about your stunning date. The waiter can make or break the experience. So it is in the church with the deacon. They can make or break the experience by be either being sort of peace-preserving, shock-absorbing, ministry-multiplying servants, or if they're not qualified, the kind of people who actually make matters worse. So the qualifications that Paul gives us here uh, in this letter are qualifications that help us to look for the right kinds of people who can serve in the right kinds of ways so that we get the right kinds of results in the church. So now, when we come to verses 8 and 12, 8 through 12, uh, Paul gives us here the qualifications, what we should look for in deacons. When we started the church, uh, one of the first books we read together as a church was a book called The Trellis and the Vine. It's written by two Australian pastors. Um, it is written to sort of argue for a kind of ministry mind shift, to shift the church's mind frame of mind away from programs and entertainment and performance to people and serving people and, and multiplying and helping people grow. And, and in that book, they say, hey, look, the, the framework said when you're looking for leaders or you're growing leaders and developing leaders, you should sort of train them into three C's. Three C's. Character, conviction, and competence. Now, you want to train them in 
uh, Christian character, the kinds of things we'll see here in a moment. We want to train them in Christian conviction, that is belief. And you want to train them in competence, the ability to do certain things. And that, I think, is a good framework for what we see here in verses 8 and 12. In, in verses 8 and 12, we get character. Notice what Paul says. He refers in verse 8 to the personal character. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Dignified means that they are, in an appropriate way, serious. They are, they are people who have gravitas. They, there's a weightiness to them. They are they're not trifling folk. They're not overly playful folk. They're not unserious folk, but they are respectable as people. And not only that, they're not double-tongued. You could translate that fork-tongued. They don't speak out of both sides of their mouths. Or we might say they're not two-faced, right? Now, these are people who are the same people, whether they're with you or with somebody else, whether they're in public or they're in private. These are folks who have one face. And it's the face of integrity. It's the face of truthfulness. And they're not addicted to much wine. I don't know why Paul puts it that way. You know, when he talks about the qualifications for pastors, he says they're not drunkards. Here he says not addicted to much wine, right? As if the deacons putting up with the pastors can drink a little bit more, right? But he says they're not addicted to much wine. It means the same thing. They're not drunkards. They're not people who uh, are controlled by substances. Right? And you can substitute wine for other kinds of substances, but these are people who are, um, have control of their own mind, their own lives. They're not, they're not sort of moved by wine and drink. And notice the last thing, they're not greedy for dishonest gain. He said the same thing of pastors. Now he's saying it's the same quality you're looking for in deacons. These are not people who are um, sort of, they're greedy. They want more than they have and more than they should have. They want what belongs to other people. And notice, greed is for dishonest gain. Right? So the greediness gets coupled with dishonesty. They, 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 they slippery, they trickery, they, you know, they, they're looking for ways to get over. That's not what you want in a deacon. That's not the kind of personal character that we're looking for. So that's verse 8. Then verse 12, he tells us about the sort of family character, the character at home. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Again, we saw the same qualifications back in verses 4 and 5 for pastors. Here, again, the home is sort of a small model of the church. So there's our household, the small church, and there's God's household, the big church. And the idea very simply is, if you can't manage the small household, how will you manage the big household? Right? If you don't, if you don't take care of a spouse, if you don't take care of your children. And that's what that word manage um, sort of means in the original. It has a notion of nurturing, of building up, of caring for gently. If you don't care for the people in your own house with nurturance and gentleness, what makes us think we're going to flip a switch and turn that on with the people of God's household? Right? You know how it's like. You know, I mean, you know, you think about managing your children versus other children. You got children. I don't know how God does this, but almost from the time they're born, your ears are key to their cry. Right? You can pick out your child's cry in a crowd, fear, and things you see happening in other kids' lives, you kind of might be a little bit self-righteous. You're like, never had my child do that. 
you know. Or maybe you've had a conversation with people who don't yet have children and they're fearful about having children and, and, and they might say something like, I don't want my kids to be like so-and-so and so on. And you might be trying to encourage them and assure them and say, well, it's different when they're yours. Right? Well, that, that's all an indication that our households are, are meant to occupy kind of a special place and we're meant to be especially nurturing at home. But if we're not, then we're not going to be especially nurturing with God's children, God's household. And so we want character personally and character at home. But notice now he talks also about conviction, verse 9. Again, conviction is another word for belief. And in verse 9, we're being told that deacons are meant to be people of strong belief. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, that word mystery, don't think Agatha Christie right, or Walter Mosley, devil in a blue dress or something. Don't, don't think mystery in that sense, an unsolved riddle. In the New Testament, the word mystery is actually used for something that was once hidden in the Old Testament, but now has been revealed in Christ. Paul uses this word a lot, and usually he uses it attached to some important aspect of the gospel. So if you're taking notes, let me give you a few references here where you can see this word used. In verse 16, just a few verses later, he uses this word mystery to refer to the incarnation, that the Son of God took on human flesh and came into the world. Or in Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul uses it to refer to the way Christ lives in his people, that it's a, a mystery that the Son of God is not only coming to the world in human flesh, but after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, by his spirit, he comes and lives in those who believe in him. Or in Ephesians 3, verses 4 to 6, refers to the mystery of how Jesus lives not just in us individually, but how now he lives in his whole church, and because of that, Jew and Gentile, we might say black, white, Hispanic, Asian, that people from every nation now are united as one in the church. That's part of the mystery. God has wanted to create for himself one people made up of all different kinds of people. Colossians 4, verse 3, applies the word mystery to the gospel itself. The good news that Jesus Christ has died for sinners. That all of us were sinners who deserve God's judgment, but Christ has taken our place. He took our place on the cross to take our punishment so that we wouldn't have to be punished if we put our faith in him. And he rose from the grave for our justification, the Bible said. He says, what is that? Well, he rose from the grave so that God might declare us righteous as if we were Jesus. And through his death and resurrection, through his perfect life, all of his righteousness becomes ours. And we are accepted with God through faith in him. Paul says that's the mystery. That's the secret that was hidden that has now been revealed. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, he uses that same word, mystery, to refer to the glorious change that will happen with Christians. He writes there about Jesus' second coming. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, right? We shall not all die. And he says Christ is coming back. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he's coming back, and the dead in Christ will rise 
and we who are alive will be gathered with him. It's a great mystery, but God has, from before the worlds began, decided that he will have a people who will live with him forever and share in his glory. This is what we call the gospel, the good news. And this is what we preach to you this morning. This is what God wants you to hear and understand and hold on to this morning. So if you're a Christian this morning, you, you when we look at verse 9, we not only want deacons to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, but we too, whether or not we're deacons, we want to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, without, without rejecting it, without doubting it, with full assurance that these things we read in God's Word have actually happened. And these truths that we learn from God's Word are actually true. And what God has promised us in the Lord Jesus Christ is actually ours. This is what makes us Christians. This is what makes us a church. This is what gives us purpose and hope beyond this life. It is what puts our happiness beyond the reach of our enemies. And Christ has come into the world, died for our sins, rose again, and has purchased for us eternal life. And is coming again that we might share in his glory and live forever in his love. And if you're here and you're not a Christian yet, you can be. And it's really simple. God has not asked you to do any great performance. He's not asked you to do anything that makes you worthy of this. He gives it to you freely. And he says, very simply, confess and turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the promise is, you shall be saved. You will know the mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ his Son. And if you'd like to know more about how to do that this morning, we'd like nothing more than to talk with you after the service and help you understand it and encourage you in any way that we can. So stick around after the service. Um, we're a friendly bunch. Let's talk. And let's talk about the most meaningful thing in the world, where you're going to spend eternity and whether you have faith in this Jesus. So we want deacons who hold this mystery with a clear conscience. So even though they're going about practical tasks, being table servants, if you will, we want them to have a gospel mind. We want them to be people of clear conviction, who understand the truth and who know the scripture in a competent way and, and, and who can explain the faith from when, on occasion when required. And notice the third C, competence. So we've seen character in verses 8 and 12. We see conviction in verse 9. We see competence in verse 10. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, we don't know what this testing uh, was in the, um, in the New Testament church, but I suspect that it's a testing that really has to do with what we've been talking about, with character and with conviction, but also competence. Can they actually do the task? that they would be called upon to do. And so it's been our practice to just practically uh, look out for those folks who are already serving in particular ministries, who show some competence, some ability to, to lead and to execute and to serve in that area as part of their testing. And when they have served for a while and done that, then we, we begin the process of thinking with them about character and conviction and qualification uh, for service in the ministry. But in that testing, notice, they prove themselves blameless. They prove themselves above reproach. Not perfect. That's not what the word blameless means there. 
but it means that their general life, their general character, right, is not one that's easily blamed. And they're not folks who are easily found guilty because they're normally upright and righteous. So that's what we should look for in deacons. Now, two couple, two things real quick in terms of uh, applications. Number one, these are qualities that all of us should aspire to. So when we're thinking about what, what the Bible says here about what a pastor is to be or what a deacon is to be, almost everything that is listed as a qualification somewhere else in the New Testament is commanded of all Christians, right? So all we're looking at here are pictures, profiles of Christian maturity. Right? So if you want to know what it looks like to be a mature Christian, if you want to know what it looks like to be a solid Christian, you can go to these list of qualifications and see here a picture of maturity. And see here something that should describe each and every one of our lives as Christians as we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that means that when we think about leadership in the church, we shouldn't be thinking that deacons or pastors are people with Superman S's on their, church, on their chest. I know somebody's going to be a comic geek. Like, that's not an S. That's a family name. Okay, I know that. But you know what I mean. You, you, don't, you, don't have a, you don't have on tights and a cape under your clothes, right, when you're a deacon or an elder. You put your pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. You, you are on the path of sanctification like everybody else. You, are, you should be, if you're in this office, a little bit further down the road than everybody else so that you can be an example of these things but you're not like a different kind of being, a different kind of Christian, like they are, you know, elite Christians and ordinary Christians. We all busted. We, we all jacked up. We all ratchet. We all human. We all got frailties and faults and things of that sort. And God's began to work in us, and he's going to complete it, right? And yet he has some folks a little further along in that completion process. So this, this should be every one of our aspirations. Whether or not we serve in these offices, we should aspire to have this character, this conviction, and this competence. And God is, just by way of application and celebration, God's been good to us in the deacons he's given to us. Our very first deacon was Nick Rodriguez. Nick served us as our deacon of budget from day one. And when his term expired, we wouldn't let him go. We kept him chained in the basement. Said, no, you're going to keep serving as a deacon. And he did so joyfully. And, and if you know Nick, you know that he's a humble, unassuming brother, omnicompetent, just really gifted brother. And, and he gives it in service to, to the Lord's church. He's generous in every way. The second deacon we had the privilege of calling was Lloyd Matthews. Yeah, our brother Lloyd served us the deacon of AV, with us from the beginning, from the launch of the church. And when we, you know, we don't, we, this is the thing, beloved. When you plan a church, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you need. You got to figure everything out from scratch. And Lloyd jumped in and said, man, I've been doing sound for 20 years. I, I, I can serve in this area. And, and gave himself to that with a spirit of, of excellence and, and diligence and training others, et cetera, and served faithfully. And now his successor, Will Herring, serving in that same area. Serving, if you know Will, he has a, a real passion for steadfastness just comes out of it, right? It's just black and white and takes a stand on the truth. And, and that's a good quality because we want deacons who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, don't we? And so he serves there faithfully. God has been good to us 
in the deacons that he's given us. And here, beloved, in the deacons that he will give us. So these are gifts from Christ to his church. And we're meant to receive these gifts and celebrate these gifts and support these gifts as they do their ministry. So that's what we're to look for in deacons. Um, one more thing, or switching things here. What about deaconesses? Is that a thing? Can women serve as deacons? Well, look at verse 11. I got my amen corner down. You're like, yes, I like that. Look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this is, in our English translations, this looks like a pretty straightforward sort of sentence. And it looks like he's still talking about the qualifications for deacons. But actually, the English translations are a little bit deceptive in terms of what the Greek actually says. So, for example, the word there is not there in the original language. That's supplied by the interpreters in our English translations who, in the tradition of, of, of sort of translating this verse, have thought that he's still talking about the deacons and their qualifications. And that word wives could be translated women. So strictly speaking, the most literal way to translate this verse would be women likewise, not their wives likewise. And this has led to about three or four different positions on this text. Some people think that he's still talking about the deacon's qualification, but now he's speaking about their wives and the character that the deacon's wives are supposed to have. I actually don't, I mean, that's, that's possible given the, 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 the language of the original, but I actually don't think that's what's in view. It would be a little odd for him to talk about the wives of deacons, but not the wives of pastors, for example, right? One view says that, okay, what we have here um, is a reference to women who served as assistants to deacons. And this is a, a long tradition in the Christian church of women serving in that way. That's possible. I don't think that's what this text means either. The other view is that this is either women deacons or deaconesses. And that's the view that I take, in part because of that word likewise. When Paul has used that word in this chapter, he has transitioned to a different office. So he starts in chapter 3, verse 1, talking about pastors. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, likewise deacons. So now he's in, a, he's in a list. He's in a serial. And so he's moved to deacons. And when he says here, women likewise, I think he's referring to women deacons or deaconesses here. And so he's into a third category, if you will. But notice what's said about their qualifications. Four things. They must be dignified. Same thing we saw with the deacons, same thing we've seen with elders and other positions. That means they must be worthy of respect. They must be serious, uh, not trifling. And notice that they must not be slanderers. The word there in the Greek is um, diabolos. Same word we get the word devil from, who is the slanderer of the brethren. They must not be malicious talkers. They, not must, they must not trash others. They must not have a reputation for talking poorly about other saints or other people. They're not slanderers. Instead, they're sober-minded. It means they're they are restrained. They are temperate. They're not, they're not sort of tossed to and fro in, in different emotions, but they're, they're stable. They're, they're self-controlled. And they're faithful in all things. These deaconesses are trustworthy. You can give them things, small and great, and know that they're in good hands. They're better than all states. 
<laughs> now, no matter how you take this verse, in terms of if you think that it's referring to the wives of deacons, or if you think it's referring to deaconesses, uh, or if you think it's referring to something else, it really doesn't matter how you translate this verse or how you interpret this verse. The result is the same. The Bible is telling us in unequivocal fashion that women have a major role to play in the life and ministry of the church. So the positive upshot of this is women are serving in the church in an active way, in a category that's so prominent and so important that Paul has to give qualifications for it. Call it what you want to. But when God gives the Great Commission to the local church and calls the local church to carry out his orders, he means that to fall not just on men, but on the whole church, men and women together. And so here we see Paul encouraging the identification of the kind of character that, 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 that allows the church to lift up women in a role of service that others can look to as models and aspire to. So as a church, we want to be a community of believers where sisters, young and old, flourish in the God-given gifts that they have and in service to their Lord. Now, I'll put it this way, in service to their Lord, because they're not in service to me and the elders, and they're in service primarily to the church. And so we ought to be careful of being the kind of church that develops a sort of attitude that's gatekeeping against women in an inappropriate way. That we want to see them use their gifts and serve in every way that their Lord calls them to serve. And have every opportunity that their Lord opens up for them. And we don't want to be doing that fearfully, but joyfully. Because God is joyful about it. And so here, we ask the question, can women serve as deacons? Our answer as a church, interpreting this passage the way we do, is yes, absolutely yes, hallelujah, yes. Praise God, yes. And I would say to all the women, again, as we said a moment ago with the qualifications for men, here's a good blueprint of, of female or, or womanly maturity. This is what you want to grow up to be. These are the kinds of things that Paul mentions over in Titus chapter 2 when he talks about the role of older women in the life of the church uh, and younger women in their discipleship. So Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, Paul writes there, older, well, that's the men there, verse 3 to 4, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, that's dignified, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So how our women grow in these qualities, and how our older women train younger women to grow in these qualities and to grow in their callings as women and Christians and perhaps wives and perhaps mothers, all of that speaks a word of defense for the Scripture and the Gospel. You see what it says at the end of verse 5? That the Word of God may not be reviled. The woman's life is so important in the witness of the church that the woman's life has this power to defend the truthfulness and the integrity 
of the scripture. That's true of all Christians, male or female. But the Bible here is singling out this, this peculiar ministry, this peculiar witness that is especially true of women who live this way and grow in this quality. So we want our older women to grow into this and to exhibit this, and we want our older women to teach younger women to grow into this and to exhibit this. We want to be kind of a, a manufacturing facility for godly women who glorify God and whose very lives dignify the Bible and its truth. This is why the very first ministry we started as a church as elders was not a men's ministry or not uh, some kind of outreach ministry or things of that sort, but as elders, the first ministry we started when we launched this church seven years ago is what we call our Titus II ministry. It is, it is called that because we are very literally trying to apply Titus II, where the pastors are told to teach the older women to be dignified, not slanderers, etc., that they might teach the younger women. And so almost from the beginning of the church uh, up until the pandemic, we've had a group of at least a dozen women or so, older women in the congregation, who have met monthly with the pastors to walk through the three C's, character, conviction, and competence. And have encouraged them to turn out to the younger women to serve and care for and disciple them. We've got the Women's Fellowship coming up in a couple of months. That quarterly fellowship came out of that group of Titus II women who said, I think it's time that we turn out to the younger women and invest in them. And so this is the kind of church that we want to be. And brothers, can I say to you just real quickly, I said this to the ladies last week when we were thinking about pastors. Let me say this to you this week. As we're thinking about deaconesses, this is what you should be looking for in a woman. This is what you should be looking for in a wife. This kind of character. Don't be all caught up with clothing and hair and all the things. Not that those things are altogether unimportant. They certainly are not most important. What's most important is character. What's most important is conviction, competence, the kinds of things we see in the Bible here. Learn to esteem these things. Learn to praise women, our sisters, for these things. Learn to be attracted to these things. As men, we are far too visual and superficial. I don't mean that to be beaten up on guys. All I mean is to say, you know, we, we live so much through the eye gate. And that's about all it takes for us. And yet if we're godly, we've got to put that to death. To see as Christ sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. And we're going to be godly men who see our sisters and see potential, a potential spouse the way God would see them. We've got to be looking at the heart not just stopping at the superficial. You tracking with me, brothers? No, that's weak. You tracking with me, brothers? See, the first time it was all the married men. Like, amen, we've been sufficiently trained. We know. The younger brothers, I mean, y'all with me, brothers? Uh-oh. Brother Durst, let's talk after the service about the men's ministry and, and, and what we focus on <laughs> with the brothers. All right, let's move to our last, our last consideration in this text. Verse 13, I want us to observe the deacon's reward 
Paul concludes the section this way, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. You may have a translation that says an excellent standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, I want to suggest to you that what the Bible has given us here in verse 13 is a very compelling reason why if ever called to serve as a deacon, you should say yes. If you have the character and the conviction and the competence and you get asked the question, of call to serve in this way. Here's an inducement from the Bible, from God himself, as to why you should say yes. Notice here, those who serve well as deacons, notice what happens. They gain a good standing for themselves. In other words, they they gain um, the sort of godly approval of the church and of Christ. That when you serve the Lord in this way and serve his bride in this way, Christ takes notice. Right? Christ, Christ receives that as worship. Christ receives that as an offering. Christ receives that as faithfulness. And, and your standing as a servant, if this is the right way, I'm not sure it's the right way to use this phrase, but your standing as a servant is elevated. The reason I'm not sure elevated is the right word is because the way up in the Christian life is down. It's the humble that get exalted. It's the servant that gets exalted. And there's no role in the church that quite matches the spirit of Christ the way the role of deacon and deaconess does. But what did Jesus tell us in John 10, 45? He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And what does the deacon do? He comes not to, she comes not to be served, but to serve, to lay down her life in service to Christ's people. There's not another office in the church that enters into that, that sort of perspective of Christ's life quite the way the deacon and deaconess does. And for that, they gain a good standing with Christ and the church. And not only that, notice the second part here, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Another word we could use for this is assurance, assurance of faith, that you're serving in this kind of capacity, serving well, is actually one of the means that God uses to assure you that your faith is genuine, that your faith is strong, that, that your faith in Christ is, is not futile, but real and effective. Sometimes I think as Christians, we want all the assurance of faith, that we're in the faith, that we're good Christians, Etc. without actually doing anything, without actually bringing forth fruit in keeping with our profession. And here now, the, the Bible is telling us, that those who serve as deacons and, and give themselves to this task, that, that one of the things God graciously does as they serve is give them great confidence of their faith in Jesus Christ, gives them assurance of their faith. Why? Well, because in that good service, they are producing the fruit of the Spirit. They they are demonstrating those things that then speak back to them, yes, your faith is real. Yes, your Savior is real. Yes, your hope in that Savior is secure. So, beloved, if you want to be someone who is able to sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 
heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. If, if you want to be the kind of Christian who can sing that song with great joy and confidence, be the kind of Christian that serves other people. Whether or not you're a deacon. So husbands, we should be washing our wives' feet. We should be wrapping a towel around our waist, kneeling to the floor, a pan of water, washing our wives' feet, maybe like that woman who washed Jesus' feet with her own tears, praising God for the women that he's given us to be heirs of life with. And parents, we should be serving our children with humble and glad hearts not trying to make them little replicas of us and not turning them into some kind of metal or showpiece that reflects back on us and our glory, but letting them be little children and serving them and encouraging them and molding them in, in Christ. Not resenting them. There's a little thing going around on Reels or TikTok or something, and it, it's funny. I've laughed. But the little reel is a little voice thing that says, you know, I don't have no money. You know, I don't have no money. And then the camera shifts over normally to like a little kid or something or a teenager, right? That is funny. It's meant in jest. But the expenses that we have for our children and raising our children, those should never feel to us like burdens, but like privileges. We get to serve them. Your parents get to send you to college. When you call home and ask for money next time, you get to send me some money, Dad. You should be happy. Pastor said you should be glad. So whether it's our children or our spouses, the workplace, we should be known as servants in the workplace. And the more difficult the workplace, the more we should be known as servants. I know some of us don't like our bosses. We got terrible bosses. It doesn't change our marching orders. <laughs> I'm always happy when you come to church. Sis. <laughs> it doesn't change our marching orders. That we're to love everyone, even our enemies. And, and we're to be humble servants. right? And we're to do our work as unto the Lord, knowing that he's the one who gives us our reward. Right? If we name the name of Christ, the Christ who served us by laying down his life for us while we were still enemies of him, then we ought to be marked by sacrificial service. That's our calling card. It's who we are. It's who our Savior is. It's who we're reflecting. And God has given us offices in the church to reflect both the, the leadership kind of quality of our Lord in the pastoral role and to reflect his servanthood in the diaconal way. And those things go together. So pastors are servants who lead and deacons are leaders who serve. And together, hopefully, by God's grace, we reflect God's Son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this privilege to be able to pray and to come into your presence to hear your word and reflect on your goodness. 
we thank you, Lord, for all those deacons and deaconesses that you have given us. We, we mentioned, Lord, um, Nick and Lloyd and Will, but you've given us Hannah Baker, who's been so faithful as to serve in two roles as a deaconess with us. You've given us Precious Rideout, who is not only precious in name, but just precious in spirit, full of kindness and gentleness, soft-spoken, but fervent and solid in the faith. We thank you for her. You've given us Dawn Coven, who serves as our deaconess of member care. Oh, what a, what a role she's so aptly fit for, who demonstrates her competence in so many ways, who has already in her first year in that role been growing that ministry and growing our capacity to care. We praise you for her. We give you, we give you praise for Jen Zamchia. We thank you for Jennifer, who leads a whole team that is sort of the, the first face of the church with the ushers and the greeters and, and who brings such zeal and efficiency uh, to her task and, and accompanies that with a, with a smile and a joyful laugh and a, um, a, a wonderful quality of service. We love to see these women in their various capacities. And we thank you for Joanne Scarrett. My sister Joanne, who is taking on a task that she doesn't feel uniquely qualified for, but in every way is qualified in character and conviction and has proven her competence, Lord, as she served as our uh, deaconess of budget, Lord. We thank you for the way she gives attention to the administrative and financial matters of the church and the ways in which she gently guides and, and leads in that capacity, Lord. We thank you for her selflessness and her generosity. We praise you for these women. And we praise you for and ask you for many more men and women like them who would serve the needs of your church and bless your children. Help us to honor them for they are praiseworthy and they are precious in your sight. Help us to pray for them and help us to join them in their work so that when we hear them ask us to volunteer, we know that they're calling us up in Christ to serve as he has served and to serve as they have served and to so be conformed to his image and his likeness. Lord, we pray that you would make us so supportive of a church that they would never feel themselves, Lord, abandoned or alone or um, unsupported, but would be able to do the work that you have called them to. Father, we praise you. We give you thanks. We ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.